Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Mark Daguerre continues our series on Lessons from Life Stories, looking at the life of Eli. And now, here's Mark. Good morning, everyone. You can all hear me okay? Good. How about we open up in prayer before we start? Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we think of this this uh, Christmas season and how blessed we are to be able to celebrate this. And Father, how, as believers, it just has a deeper meaning. Lord, the fact that you condescended to earth to be with us, Lord, to ultimately go to the cross and take our punishment upon yourself, Lord. Lord, Christmas has a a whole other meaning for us. And Lord, we praise you that you've given us that knowledge, that that love for you and that understanding. Lord, as we look into your word today, we just pray that you would help us to apply this to our own lives. And Lord, that you would be glorified to all that we do. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at the... uh, at Eli, apparently the lot was cast, and I get to speak on another backslider. So, turn with me to First Samuel chapter two. I find it amazing how you know winter has. It seems like it's just begun, and we're already on our. I think it's our fifth snow day for those that are going to school. The kids are loving that. You know, when I was a kid, we walked to school in three feet of snow, uh, uphill both ways. You know. But that fluffy white stuff, that's just an indicator that Christmas is upon us. This year, though, is going to be a, a unique one for many of us since this is our first COVID Christmas. You know, and as I'm saying that, it just sounds to me like a Hallmark movie, a COVID Christmas. Um, one of the things that I'm hoping for is that this situation has taught us some things. Uh, is maybe something like sometimes we take things for granted, right? And when I say sometimes, I mean often. Uh, we've possibly already forgotten some of the instances from this past year and how it's affected our lives, how it's impacted us uh, during this time, because, you know, many of the restrictions have been lifted since then. Remember, this started in the spring, like when a simple visit to the grocery store was no longer an option. Remember how, you know, we went from moving about freely, just going down the aisles, getting whatever you wanted, and then all of a sudden you're only allowed to have one person per family going in at a time, and then you would go there, try to find the items you needed, which was hard because many of the shelves were empty due to the shortages. And then after you were done, you had to exit with haste, without haste, I should say, uh, so that somebody that was waiting outside in the cold weather in a line would have the opportunity to go back in there themselves and to see what all was missing on the shelves. And if memory serves me right, it seems like we couldn't find flour or yeast for, it seemed like, several months. And then now the shelves are full again and, you know, we've moved on. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting a few groceries and I purchased a bag of flour. That memory didn't even enter into my mind. You know, oh, how quickly I forgot. Or even think about how we used to freely visit with people. You know, you'd have friends and relatives over for a good old chin wag, and then before you, do, <clears throat> before you know it, all of a sudden, 
you know, you couldn't leave your home unless it was for an essential reason. In time, some of those restrictions have left and we've moved on. And sure enough, we've forgotten. And something else that happened is that uh, there were people all over the globe that were in this heightened sense of fragility. And many of whom became concerned with life, with death, with eternity and God. People were searching for something to give them hope. Some found comfort in a religion that they already knew. A few people shook their fists at God. Others had a desire to find faith while it was still budding up inside of them. But then, many of those people, they quickly forgot about that fear of death. And that conviction that they had about coming face to face with a holy and just God had left as well. They simply went back to living their normal lives. The God that they were seeking here was now just a faded and a distant memory. And it no longer had an impact on their life. So you see, over time, your emotions are kind of erased in the memories. We can quickly forget about an impact an event has on our life, especially if we don't allow that event to actually change our lives for the better. And we may actually end up taking it for granted. The first chapter of Samuel, we are introduced to a man named Elkanah and his wife Hannah. This couple, they didn't take God for granted. They didn't just try on the faith when they were in need of something. Or when they were going through some difficulties. They didn't set out to seek the Lord and then change their mind part way through. They made a decisive effort to follow the Savior of Israel. Every feast was a blessing from God. And it was celebrated in remembrance of his promises. So for them, going to the the tabernacle and offering up sacrifices to God, to them, it wasn't just done as a religious requirement. It It wasn't done begrudgingly. It was done because they wanted to be closer to him. And there was a joy in knowing that one day the Messiah would come. You can sense this loving relationship between Elkanah, Hannah, and the Lord. Even in the midst of difficulty, there's this sense of optimism. That their future doesn't belong here in this world. And their lives are surrounded with this undeniable evidence of their relationship with God. And in the first part of chapter 2... Hannah's praising God. And as she's speaking, she describes the adversaries of the Lord. And as she's describing them, she talks about them as being filled with pride. They are arrogant. They are mighty and wicked. Initially, you think as she's she's proclaiming this, that she's strictly talking about the surrounding nations, the enemies of Israel. But as you read through the following chapters... It becomes clear that some of these adversaries that she's pretty much prophesying about here were not only the Philistines, but also the priests of Israel. Those that were entrusted with keeping and proclaiming the faith had become the 
principal cause of Israel's stumble. Instead of serving the Lord at the tabernacle, Eli's wicked sons, they had gone and changed it from a place of worship to a place where they would live out a vile, abhorrent lifestyle. And they would do this before all of Israel, and they would do this before God. It got so bad that they were fornicating in the tabernacle, and everyone was talking about it. Can you imagine the most holy place, and you turn it into a brothel? The place looked less like the tabernacle of God, and it looked more like the pagan temples of the godless nations that surrounded Israel. The nation of Israel was under attack, and the culprits actually lived among them. Why would they do this? You know, think of it, how does somebody get to this point? What would cause someone to do such horrendous things in such a holy place, a place set apart? In chapter 3, the second part of verse 1 kind of gives us a clue. It says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. So according to this, the, the people, they rarely heard the word of God. Eli, he didn't proclaim it as he should have. And he didn't appreciate the seriousness of the repercussions that would inevitably follow. You reap what you sow. Eli... Eli took God for granted. And since his decision had caused him to go off the rails, and this had been happening for quite a while now, he became numb to the corrective promptings that the Lord would send his way. See, somebody doesn't just go from being on fire for God, and then the next day they're cold as ice. This is a gradual slide. So he doesn't hear the people that God sends his way, or he hears them, but he doesn't follow the corrective. You see, it didn't happen overnight. It began with one step at a time in the wrong direction. Think of it this way. It's like a hot summer's day. I know as we look outside, it's very difficult to imagine that right now, because again, we forget it was so long ago. But imagine on a hot summer's day, you want to go for a swim in, in a cold spring-fed lake. When I say spring-fed, a lot of you guys are like, oh, I know what you're talking about now. It doesn't warm up, right? So you know exactly what I'm talking about. You start and you dip your foot in and you quickly take it out. As fast as it went in, it comes out because that is way too cold. It actually hurts when you put your foot in there. You know which pain of the lake I'm talking about, right? Okay. It's absolutely freezing. And then you look around and you see all these people frolicking and jumping in the water and you're thinking to yourself... Man, have they lost their mind? What are they doing? And as you're saying that, you dip your foot in again, right? And then your foot starts to get used to that coldness. And then it starts to, uh, it seems like it warms up a little bit more. And before you know it, you got both feet in there. Now your feet are numb. And then you're walking into the deeper area. And you're walking back out to the shallow area. And every once in a while, you go back out to the deep area. And then you're getting used to it. And before you know it, your whole entire body is immersed in this frigid lake. At this point, even your brain is frozen. And then you look to the shore, and then you see your better half there looking at you, nodding her head like, have you lost your mind now? As they're dipping their foot in the lake, 
right? So you see how it moves and it moves. And falling into sin can be kind of like that. You know, if you keep stepping back into it, after a while, you'll just get comfortably numb. You won't realize that the fire that was once burning inside you, this this roaring fire, is actually starting to cool off. And as you start getting used to being in this situation, you inevitably get to the point where you are conformed to this world. You see, in order to renew our mind, we need to hear the Word of God. The Word of God is what transforms us. And because he didn't proclaim it, Eli failed in his role as a father, and he failed in his role as a leader in Israel. Eli ended up taking God for granted. You know, he was very religious, but he failed to let the Word of God actually permeate every part of his being. The result is that there was no power in his words. The power doesn't come from the person. The power comes from the Word of God. And his testimony was now damaged beyond repair because he was corrupted by the cares of this world. It's one thing that his sons were hellions, okay? But it's another thing that he allowed them to remain in this position in the tabernacle. Any good person, any right person would have seen the issue and removed them from that office. And there wasn't any consequences to their actions. They weren't servants of the Lord. They were just a bunch of spoiled brats. And this affected, and as well as infected, many of the other people as well. The situation with his boys had compounded, and it had gotten so much worse as they were aging. Nevertheless, God gave them time to make the necessary corrections, because God is gracious. Eli just needed to use the instrument that God had already provided. God had given him many tools to make these corrections. Chapter 2, verse 27. We're going to be reading there. And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, did I plainly appear unto thy house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all offerings of Israel, my people? Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. Eli was warned of exactly what would happen. But as you read through the text you notice he didn't share any of that information with his boys. See, you could think that you love somebody, but if you don't love God first, you don't love somebody. Okay? 
let me put it this way. I used to love my wife. Well, I still do. <laughs> I love my wife, okay? But when I became born again, okay, I loved God more. <clears throat> I loved God more, but because of that, I was able to love my wife even more. It's not that some of that love was transitioned from her to God. It's just I didn't know how to love properly until God gave me that ability. Okay? And Eli might think here that he loves his kids. But if he doesn't love God, he doesn't love his kids the way he should love his kids. And when God came to him and gave him this warning, the proof is he didn't open his mouth. You know, maybe in today's society, some of the reasons we would be using would be like, well, you know what, we don't want to offend. We don't, you know, we want to change people by being good to them. You know, we don't want them to think ill of us, especially if we start talking about uh, H-E double hockey sticks, right? The, the list of the reasons goes on. But there comes a time when a person needs to just say, thus saith the Lord. Because the scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't come by hearing somebody speak. It comes by the fear of the Lord, which comes from the word of God. See, these, pro- these boys, they probably uh, thought that they knew more about uh, what they, they knew. Uh, I'm French. It's coming out all wrong right now. See, these boys, they probably thought they knew more than what they actually knew. There you go. Does that make more sense? They thought they knew more than they actually knew. But by not knowing the scriptures for themselves, they wouldn't be able to believe what it actually says. It's one thing to hear it third hand, okay, or second hand. But until you open it for yourself, they won't know for themselves. And if that's the case, then they wouldn't be able to heed its warnings. They would never have the wisdom to make the right decision. In chapter 2.12, it says, The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. That is a frightful thought. Because think of their position. There's no reason for this. As you read their account, the evidence also shows that they were not even slightly interested in getting to know him and to try to find God. Men that were raised in the faith, living in the promised land. I mean, even the enemy nations that surrounded them, they spoke of the God that led Israel out of Egypt. Hophni and Phinehas, they knew about God, but they didn't know him. And you know, it's, it's like something I say all the time. There's a huge difference between knowing about something and knowing it. Knowing about God is not the same thing as actually knowing him and having a personal relationship with him. And if you don't know the difference, come and see me or come and see somebody else that, that knows the difference. I could share that with you. These guys, they could care less. They have a disdain for him. They use God as a way to try to force their desires on people. They're using God. They don't believe, but they're using him. And like the spoiled brats that they are, they throw these hissy fits now when they don't get their way. It's like, give me a cut of that steak. No, I have to burn off the fat because the fat belongs to the Lord. Give it to me or else I'm going to knock you. That's how spoiled brats behave. They don't seem to realize that there are definite consequences to their actions. And what's worse is that this whole thing is causing the people of Israel now to actually abhor the offering of the Lord. Eli would have done well to just sing a couple of children's songs to them when they were younger, you know, something like Jesus and others and you. 
You know, you guys know that song? Good. You know, it's, it's one that goes, uh, Jesus and others in you. I'm not going to sing, I'll just say it, okay? Uh, wonderful, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others in you. Get it? Jesus, others, you, joy. Okay, okay. J is for Jesus because he has first place. O is for others. We meet face to face. Y is for you. That's it. Y is for you. Nothing special. Okay? In whatever you do, put yourself third and spell joy. Unfortunately, Eli, he put his feelings first. He put his children second. He put others third. And he put Jehovah God fourth. Imagine that. A man, a man that was called by God to hold a priestly office. Someone that knew the Lord. A man that was to lead the people in the worship of the one true God. He was to uphold truth and the clear teaching of God, and he was supposed to expose error. He's a man that was quick to correct Hannah when he assumed that she was drunk, and yet he tolerated the incessant sins of his sons because he himself was compromised. He allowed Hophni and Phineas to continue in this unrepentant fashion, and he never corrected them. He was hard on others, but he was soft on his sons because he benefited from them. It's a form of using people, his own sons. The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 29, that Eli and his sons were not happy with the typical uh, meat that they were allowed to have from the offering of the Lord. In other words, they were bored of eating stew. I don't know about you, but man, my parents would have never put up with it. I'd be like, Mom, what's for supper? Stew. But Mom, we've been having stew for like a week. That's right. And if you're not grateful, you could be eating stew for another month. So be quiet. Sit down and eat your food. Right? The sons of Eli, though, they decided that was time for an upgrade. And Dad joined in on the fun-filled menu items. It was out with the stew and in with the choice cuts. I'm talking grade-A steaks, prime rib, rack of lamb. Menu was on. It was a buffet fit for a king. The very things that were supposed to be offered up to God, because God is our king, were now being consumed by the three little pigs, and they had the evidence around them. You know, the outside world will say things like, ah, oh, what's the big deal? Why is God so hard? They just wanted some, some steak. The problem didn't begin with them just eating the steak. The problem began when they decided that it was okay to take something that belonged to God. You know, we always think of taking something, ah, it's no big deal, depending on who you take it from. You know, you take something from a kid, ah, what's the big deal? You take that bubble gum from a kid, you know, he'll deal with it. If you were to take that bubble gum from the prime minister, you'd go to jail. If you take a steak from somebody, it's one thing, but if you take something that belongs to God, that's not good. That same sin happened when Lucifer wanted to exalt his throne above the throne of God. That same sin happened when Eve wanted to take of the fruit to know the difference between good and evil, like God. It's been well said, those that cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Eli 
he was supposed to proclaim the scriptures in order to remind them of the past so that they could actually look forward to the future. If you know that the past has been dealt with and you have faith in that, you look forward to the Messiah coming. Instead, he allowed this issue of sin in his sons to continue unabated while they were holding their priestly office. Therefore, he was also to blame. He was to blame for his sons causing Israel to transgress. Yet, in spite of all the wicked things that were happening, God is gracious. Because God is good all the time. Over and over and over again in the text, we see the grace of God peppered throughout the, the story. It's demonstrated in very tangible ways. He is patient. He is long-suffering towards Hophni, Phineas, as well as Eli. He sends a messenger directly to Eli in order to warn him of these impending results because of their lack of love. He even has people recounting what's going on with the sons in Eli's ears. What his boys are doing and how far they have been going now down this evil path, Eli is very aware of this. But now, unfortunately, it had come to a point that the activities of his sons and the lack of the actions of Eli was causing the people of God to go down a certain path that the Lord would not allow. It cannot be said that God's love excludes righteousness and judgment. Sometimes people have difficulty with that. Well, if God is love, why is there judgment? The one cannot exclude the other one. Because if God is love, he must judge and he must be righteous. And his long-suffering will not be to the detriment of the faithful. Chapter 2, in verse 34. And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. The day had come. Their death sentence was announced. And death is final. When I say death is final, I mean that once a person goes through that veil, there's no turning back. There's no do-over. There's no more opportunity to turn to God. It's done. And for Hophni and for Phineas, the Lord had given them exactly what they wanted. He gave them a place without God. And for his people, Israel, the Lord had already provided a priest that would point them to the way. Because God is good all the time. Because, see, what happened is years ago, he had given Hannah a child. She took that child and instilled in him a reverence for the Lord. Could you imagine her having a conversation with her little kid? You know, I was barren, but God provided me with you. You are a blessing from God. The evidence is all around us. There's no other way. God provided you. And then you're instilling truth into these children. 
And every year she made for him this little linen ephod. A garment that is reserved for those that are serving the Lord in his tabernacle. He took his ephod seriously. Not like Hophni and Phinehas. Because he had his mom filling him up. And as he's wearing this little ephod, it didn't matter how little the job was because he took his service to the Lord seriously. Think of the seemingly insignificant little things that a child can do compared to an adult. And yet the Lord was very pleased with little Samuel because he didn't take God for granted. Even the people noticed how this child was upstanding. And in the midst of the chaos due to the sons of Eli, God still reigns. And he brought up little Samuel, a little shining light. Let me just finish with this uh, other little encouraging story. (laughs) John Patton. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Patton. He was a Scottish missionary. He lived during the 1800s. At the age of 33, John had decided to go and proclaim the gospel to the Hebrides Islands in order to reach a people that lived there. Prior to him going, though, another couple had already gone. And they had been killed, and they were eaten by the local cannibals. Upon hearing of that John's intentions here, this older gentleman said, John, don't go. These cannibals are just going to eat you. And John Patton said, and I quote, Mr. Dixon... You're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. In that great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours and in the likeness of the risen Redeemer. Patton ended up serving over there actually many years in these islands. In fact, he lived another 49 years after that and was able to encourage an entire generation for the cause of Christ. He gave his all, bringing that life-saving message to those that, in his words he says, perishing heathen in the South Sea. Three years after John Patton died, there was another global missions conference in Scotland. They had hoped that they would stir up global efforts to engage the least reached, as they said, with the gospel, even more than they had been in previous years through the efforts of people like John. And with their good intentions, they wanted to be sure that they would draw large amounts of people and not allow things like solid doctrine to prevent the work from moving forward. So they began to dilute the gospel. That convention tried to blunt the sharp edge of the doctrine of eternal judgment. They began to deny the reality of hell, so on. I mean, it just goes on. But in the midst of these weaklings, God still reigned supreme. And he brought up someone to speak out. A woman by the name of Mary Slesser, another Scottish missionary, she boldly corrected these people. And she said, where are the men? Are there no heroes in the making among us? No hearts beating high with the enthusiasm of the gospel? Men smile nowadays at the old-fashioned idea of sin and hell and broken law 
and a perishing world, but these ideas made men. Men of purpose, of power, and achievement, and self-denying devotion to the highest ideals earth has known. The question now is, man, am I going to be like Eli and be led by the world, or am I going to choose to be like a Samuel and follow the Lord? Let's pray. Father, as we look up to you in awe, we can't help but feel so minuscule in your presence. Lord, the one that measures the universe by the span of his hand. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to come boldly before your throne. And as we reflect on the life of Eli, our prayer is that you would give us understanding. Understanding to make corrections in our own lives as we need to make them. Lord, we pray that you would give us kindness to gently but firmly correct those that we love and give us boldness to proclaim the truth, whether in season or out of season. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.